This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, so today we're going to be... We're going to be looking at the nature of revelation and inspiration. Now, some of this may seem to be a bit uh, just sort of, I don't know, theological or theoretical. I hope that we can make it practical as well. It's, it's an important, important step for us in understanding how to interpret and understand the Word of God, to understand how inspiration and revelation works. So we're going to be looking at that. And believe it or not, it is a very relevant topic in today's world, today's Christian world, and even in today's Adventist world, um, there is a disparity of views um, about how the Bible was inspired. You might think that this, was, uh, this would be something we all would agree upon, but, um, but we don't, and that's why sometimes in our interpretive principles, interpretive methods, we don't agree either. So we're going to be looking at this, and I hope that you'll find it practical. I hope that it'll be helpful, and I hope that you will find it to be instructive, and we will apply much of what we learn as we look at, at uh, interpretive principles a little later. So let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you that today you've given us your word. We pray that as we study that word, as we try to understand better how inspiration works, how we can um, understand the role of the prophet, the role that you played, the role that we play, that we would also be able to understand better how we can apply and, and understand your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, our understanding of revelation inspiration becomes a necessary assumption for our interpretive principles, our hermeneutics of Scripture and its theology. We look at a couple of Bible verses here. We're going to be spending some time in God's Word, but mostly we're going to be, um, we're going to be uh, well, well, we'll have a lot of the verses on the screen for you. You can still take notes. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Um, tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. First uh, Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, chapter three. Let's go ahead and read those verses together so we can understand the context here. And by the way, one of the principles of interpretation that we should always remember is that the Word of God is most clear when it is talking on the subject that we are interested in. In other words. If the Bible is talking about something else, but we begin to deduce something about death in that, it may not be as clear as when the Bible is talking about what happens when you die, right? So, for example, the rich man and Lazarus. The Bible isn't talking about what happens when we die. It's talking, telling, telling a separate story, which actually, if you read the context, is talking about a very different uh, issue, right? The, um, well, we won't go into all that. The clearest verses on death are when the Bible is actually talking about death, right? And uh, so we always, it's not that those other verses aren't inspired, it's just this. If a verse could be interpreted two ways, how do we know which way to interpret it? Will we interpret it in harmony with the verses that are very clear that are speaking on that subject that we have at question? So the Bible here is very clear because it's talking about the nature of inspiration and revelation. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, And how from a childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember, 
you were here in the last period, we saw that the, the Word of God is the agent of conversion. Here we see something similar. The Scriptures make you wise unto salvation. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So this word inspired or breathed um, is, is, is God breathing the Word of God. Um, there's another passage here, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21. Very key text when we seek to understand what happened here. God breathed the Scriptures. We're going to understand better that process in a minute. But for now, we're going to see what the Bible is saying. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Spirit of God. And um, this literally means, the pharomeni uh, literally means being moved. Um, the ESV, as I just read, says carried along by the Spirit of God. Um, very, very important for us to understand. Every prophecy of Scripture does uh, not come into being from one's own interpretation. So, this is how the Bible describes how revelation, inspiration works. Um, the problem is um, we don't all agree on what that means. So, we all can agree that God is the author of all Scripture, but how did that happen? How did that inspiration take place? What was the method or the means by which God inspired Scripture or authored Scripture? We have to come to some understanding of the roles played by God and the roles played by the human messenger. And the answers, the understanding that we arrive to, uh, become leading hermeneutical presumptions or presuppositions. That means this, how we interpret the Bible is going to be based upon the foundation of our interpretive principles is our understanding of how inspiration works. It's very, very, very important. So we're going to look at some definitions here at the beginning. And um, these, are, by the way, are not biblical definitions. These are definitions that we use in discussing these issues. There is not in the Bible a distinction made between the words we use revelation and inspiration. But for the purpose of our describing the issues in revelation and inspiration, we're using these as two different terms, and they are defined as follows. Revelation is the process through which the contents of Scripture emerged in the minds of the prophets or apostles. What happened that gave them something to write down? Okay, How did that take place? How were they, uh, did they have that revelation to their minds? Inspiration. The process through which the contents in the minds of the prophets were communicated in written or oral forms. So the first is basically how God gave that understanding to the, to the apostles or prophets. The second is how they gave that to us. Okay, so does that make sense? That's the processes of revelation inspiration for our purposes of discussion here today. Now, bi biblical writers don't use the word inspiration. Uh, breathed, God breathed, um, that's a similar term. Um, when we read the Spirit of Prophecy, um, the, the writings of Ellen White 
do not in general make a distinction between these two terms. So I don't want you to take this and go start applying it to if Ellen White says revelation, that means this and inspiration means something different. We're just talking about this for the purpose of our discussion today. Now we're going to look first at the different models of revelation and inspiration, the different ways that people understand revelation takes place and then inspiration takes place so that we can understand what um, what, what we're talking about today. So the first one we're going to look at is that of verbal inspiration. Verbal inspiration, okay? So if we're talking about major models for revelation inspiration, verbal inspiration is the first one we're going to explore together today. Verbal inspiration basically understands that God dictated the Scriptures so that the words of the Bible are the very words of God. In some sense, the Bible, this understanding of revelation and inspiration bypasses revelation and just has inspiration, okay? In other words, God just told the, the prophet what to write. Write this, and he dictated the very words. Now, that means that the prophet may or may not have even understood what he was writing about because the words were given to him. He was just going to write it out. And we're going to talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses of this understanding of inspiration a little later. God essentially dictates the Scriptures so that the words of the Bible are the very words of God. This is, could be described in the sculptor-chisel-sculpture analogy. God is the sculptor, the prophet is the chisel, and the sculpture is the Bible. See? And this is, uh, it came out exactly as God would have it, and it is exactly correct. Um, now, there's some problems with verbal inspiration. A couple of things. Um, a couple of problems that come out right away. First of all, verbal inspiration allows for a depreciation of the literal meaning of the biblical text, for example, in order to see the allegorical meanings. In other words, if God used a certain word, God used this word, and even though the prophet wouldn't have understood that what that word meant in the year uh, you know, 600 B.C., now that word means something very important in the year 2000, we can use that words meaning now to say, well, God would have known that, and so he did this ahead of time. I've seen this used not only in the Bible, I've seen this used in, um, in Ellen White's writings as well. For example, I'll give you an example of this. This, this should be a good example of how, how uh, verbal inspiration can lead to allegorical understandings of the text. Some of you remember the year Y2K, right? Anyone here remember what happened in Y2K? Some of you were probably a little, this is good, I'm feeling old now. Um, uh, some of you don't remember Y2K, but Y2K was a banner year. It was a change of millennium. Actually, it wasn't, by the way, because if you'll remember, there was no zero year. So anyway, this, the millennium actually changed the next year, but anyway. Um, the reality is that a lot of people thought that something cataclysmic was going to happen on New Year's Eve of 1999 that would basically bring the world to its knees. Satellites were going to fall out of orbit. You know, cars were going to stop driving. Refrigerator would quit running. I mean, anything with a computer chip in it was going, just going to die on the spot um, because of, uh, well... Because when they began using computer programming, they didn't think about the fact that they needed four digits for the years, not two digits for the years. Okay? So now it was going to put everything thinking it was back in 1900 instead of in 2000. So that was the basic problem. 
well, if there's going to be some major event like this, the Bible must talk about it. Ellen White must talk about it, right? So there were Adventists who were studying their Bibles and finding explanations for how the Bible predicted Y2K. And I remember some of them very, very clearly. There was one particularly who, that I remember clearly. There was a vision which Ellen White described, and I think it may have just been in the Great Controversy, not an obscure source. There was a vision where Ellen White describes the, uh, the time of trouble, all right? Now, when does the time of trouble happen? Is it, is it already past or is it still in the future? It's in the future. Is it right before the second coming? Pretty much, right? I mean, that's the time of trouble, right? So that's, that's pretty exciting times. This is what Ellen White said. While she describes, she describes the uh, people of God being persecuted, sort of running for their lives, right? The Christians, the other Christians of the world, the persecutors, the, one who were, the ones who were trying to get rid of this sect of, of non-compliant Sabbatarians, the other Christians were saying, and this is what she says, there was, they were saying, the new millennium is upon us. There it is. Proof the time of trouble was going to be happening at Y2K. Now, I believe what they were saying, the new millennium was upon us. They were describing in her day, they expected a millennium, a thousand years of peace to come upon the earth, a Christian era, Christian millennium, before Jesus came back, right? So that's what I think they were meaning. But those who had an understanding of verbal inspiration, reading Ellen White's writings, they, they were thinking, see, Ellen White may not have even understood that, but God had told her, God, God gave her those words, they were saying the millennium was upon us, and that new millennium must mean the second millennium, Y2K. You understand the problem? Verbal inspiration allows for an allegorical understanding of the text that even the prophet may not have understood. Because God put that word there. God dictated that word. So this is one of the problems with verbal inspiration. The other problem that arises with verbal inspiration is verbal inerrancy. In other words, every biblical statement is absolute truth. Um, we have a number of problems with that. While I believe the Bible is 100% accurate. I don't believe we have to believe that every word is 100% accurate. In other words, the thoughts can be accurate without the words being accurate. I'll give you some examples. And there's, uh, this may be a little controversial, but um, uh, to me this is an example of, of um, verbal inspiration's weaknesses. We have the story of the demoniacs. Now, some people take the easy way out, and they say, well, well, first of all, the problem. The problem is one gospel writer records one demoniac, another gospel writer records two demoniacs, right? We could look at a number of examples. You know, the Bible calls the tree that Zacchaeus went up a fig tree, Ellen White talks about as a sycamore tree. You know, I mean, is there these type of of, of, of minor details. We're going, to come, you're going to come, we're going to understand this better when we get a little further. But verbal inspiration would say that they can't both be right. Right? Somebody made a mistake. Um, whereas my understanding of that is that 
they recorded what they saw, what they heard, what they understood. By the way, Luke wasn't even there, so he's recording it from somebody else. My theory, my operating theory on that, the story of the demoniacs, is that when the first one rounded the corner, most of the disciples turned around and hightailed it out of there. And maybe only one or two of them even saw the second guy come around the corner. I mean, they were gone, right? I don't know. I don't know how that happened. But the point is, under verbal inerrancy, these discrepancies could not exist because God dictated Scripture, and God couldn't have made that mistake and told one had one demoniac while the other had two demoniacs. Um, there's, there's another problem with that, with verbal errancy, before, uh, verbal inspiration, before we go on. Um, one of the greatest weaknesses in my mind of verbal inspiration, that is the very words of the Bible are inspired, dictated by God, is that we would all have to become Muslims in our view of Scripture. You know what Muslims, how Muslims view their scriptures, right? My sister right now, for her own edification, enjoyment, enlightenment, uh, to know more about it, is reading the Quran. But she's not reading the Quran. She's reading the English translation of the Quran, which is not the Quran at all. You know that, right? If you're a Muslim, you cannot read the Quran in a trend. You have to read the original manuscript. So, so, in other words, if the Bible was dictated verbally, you only have two options. Either you as a Christian must learn Hebrew and Greek and read it in its original language, or the other option is every single Bible translator has to be as equally inspired as the original prophet. That's the only two options. Now, there's some people who prefer, prefer, prefer the, the, the latter option, and they will tell you, that the King James Version is the only inspired translation. Maybe you've met someone like that. Now, I have no problem. I, I grew up reading King James. I still prefer to study the King James. I sometimes preach from a new King James or another translation, but this is the reality. The King James Version has errors in it, too. I'm talking about translation errors. I think they're honest errors. I don't think the, the translators went maliciously and said, well, we're going to twist the Scripture. We're going to take this word here and mean it, translate it this way and this word and translate it a different way, the same word somewhere else. Some of the translations do that. They're not very honest in their translations, okay? That's just, just a warning. King James, I think translators were honest. But they're problems. And the reason we don't realize they're problems is because we as Adventists are used to the problems, the King James Bible, by the way, does a terrible job with the state of, dead, state of the dead and hell. There's some really bad translation mistakes or choices. But we know the proof text. We know how to get around them. We understand it. We can explain it. And so we tend to look at the King James as being 100% accurate, at least those who feel that way. But the reality is that there are only two options if you believe in verbal inerrancy. Either you have to study, if you want to study God's Word, you have to study the original language, or else the translators had to have been 100% inspired, just like the, the Bible prophets. So those are the major problems with the view of verbal inspiration. There's another uh, model of revelation and inspiration, and this is what I would consider the opposite end of the spectrum from verbal inspiration. Whereas uh, verbal inspiration says that the, the prophet's words were dictated to them, um, basically 
eliminating that whole revelation phase and just doing the inspiration phase or combining them into one, um, encounter revelation is a very different view of how uh, revelation works. And uh, encounter revelation was proposed by Frederick Schleiermacher, the father of modern theology. And by modern theology, that's not always a very uh, positive word, by the way. Modern theology is... um, we, we as Adventists are more traditional, more um, in, in the biblical and in the Revelation inspiration view, we are more conservative in our understanding. We take what's called a high view of Scripture. This is not a high view of Scripture. This is, in modern theology, the encounter revelation is the explanation they give to how the Bible came into being. Now, this is what encounter revelation is. It sees revelation as a divine human encounter devoid of the impartation of knowledge. In other words, these people had a spiritual experience. This was a, these, were, um, the, these, were, these were mystics. They had this, this religious spiritual experience with God, and then they began to write about it. And they wrote about it, not with any knowledge that came directly from God. They're just recording their experience, their encounter with God. This is the encounter uh, revelation idea. It's really the opposite of verbal inspiration uh, because not a single word or thought of Scripture comes from God. Scripture is simply a human being who had a spiritual experience, a spiritual encounter with God, describing the world around him and his experience in the best words that he could use, okay? And, 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 and it's, a valid, it's a valid and inspired experience because it's a religious experience. It's a spiritual experience, okay? Now, there's some problems with encounter revelation, as you might expect. Um, the problems are... Well, a couple, of, a couple, of, a couple of, of problems immediately come to mind. The Bible is the result of cultural evolution. Human imagination, traditions, and spiritual experiences um, are, the experience from, are the grounds from which it rises. So um, this is a very interesting uh, suggestion. And by the way, there are many people who start leaning towards this understanding without realizing what they're doing. For example, when you begin talking with Christians today, who try to justify their view on, I'll just say it, on same-sex marriage or homosexual practice or you could fill in the blank, whatever it is that society is seemingly at odds with our traditional view of what the Bible says, the most popular responses will be based on a presupposition that encounter-revelation is the mode of revelation for the Word of God. In other words, Paul was just operating. He, you know, he was a godly man. He had a good Christian experience, but he was saying things that were, that were couched or, or, um, or um, influenced by the culture in which he lived. He was reflecting the culture of his time. Sometimes people even say that about Ellen White. They'll read, well, early on in her writings, they'll see things like this. Early on in her writings, her... her uh, her writings reflect more of the Methodist upbringing that she had, which is very legalistic. I've heard that thing said. You know, later on, maybe she improved, but, you know, early on. Um, what is that presupposing? It's presupposing that her writings were not ideas or knowledge imparted by God. It was simply her recording something that was, you know, related to her spiritual experience. 
And it was, her experience is valid, her words may not be valid. Now there's an assumption in this as well. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, but there's an assumption that we all have a spiritual journey that we are on too, don't we? So at some level, what happens, consciously or subconsciously, those who adopt the encounter view of Revelation, they begin to see that their personal experience and understanding of the world around them is equally valid with the prophets because they have an experience with God too. And I've heard, it's, it's been remarkable within Adventism, the things that I've heard said that they couldn't say unless they had an encounter revelation experience. I remember one time a person said to me, and is actually, well, is a pastor. And they said to me, you know, they happened to be talking about the whole Israel-Palestinian conflict. Been in the news lately, right? And this person had a lot of leanings towards pro-Palestinian rights. And... Um, this is an Adventist saying this. I nearly, I nearly fell out of my chair. But this is what he said. He said, basically, this should be no surprise to us because even all the way back in Bible times, the Jews were practicing genocide. Think about that. The Bible records, my Bible says, that God sent them to destroy the Philistines and the people who inhabited the land, the Canaanites. But in their mind, because now we know that would be genocide and that would be morally wrong, right? No, uh, no effort is made to try to rationalize or understand what was happening in the Old Testament. I think we have to discuss that. That's something we have to, that's something we have to grapple with, right? But no effort is being made to say there was a reason why God, by the way, you know, if I go into your house and take something, it's called what? If you go into your house and take something, it's not called stealing. And God who owns life is not murder for him to take life. I'm just saying there's a difference between me killing somebody and God being the one who makes that decision. We understand that, we're getting off the subject now, but we understand that, that for 400 years the light from Abraham had been shining in these people and they had become so wicked that they were, they were actually performing human sacrifices and God said, they need to be eliminated. Not, not that they couldn't have been converted, right? They, were, they could have been. But if they're not going to become worshipers of the true God, they need to be taken out from the face of the earth. And so that's a whole other issue. But what I'm saying to you is that we sometimes, even within Adventism, we find ourselves confronted by thinkers, theologians, thought leaders, teachers, professors, others who knowingly or unknowingly, have adopted an encounter understanding of Revelation. The Old Testament writers wrote that because they were working in a Jewish cultural perspective. They wrote those things in a way that simply uh, reflected their own scientific and moral understandings. It's not God's message to us. By the way, you have heard, probably, you have heard of what we call the emerging church. Have you ever heard of that phrase? Um, by the way, the emerging church became a crisis in Christianity probably 15 or 20 years ago. Adventism is just a little slow on the uptake. Um, Christianity rejected the emerging church movement at that time because it is anti-Christian. It's a post-Christian movement. The basic, bedrock, fundamental 
foundational understanding which leads to the emergent search movement is encounter inspiration. It is looking at Scripture through the lens of simply, this is their spiritual experience, now we have our spiritual experience. When they can say, for example, the crucifixion never happened. Jesus could not have died for our sins because that would be immoral for an for a innocent to die for a guilty. They take their view of God and their worldview and they try to judge Scripture by it instead of judging their worldview by Scripture. And this is encounter revelation at its very finest in the world today. Okay, so... Encounter revelation suggests that the divine human relation takes place not at the cognitive, but at an existential or interpersonal level through the soul. Now, this is very important. Again, I just told you this was the basis of emergent church. This is what they're trying to get. They're trying to get a spiritual experience that is not intellectual. They're trying to have these mystical experiences. And so they go to Eastern... Eastern practices of meditation or centering prayers or all kinds of different um, practices using objects to try to change their mind into some spiritual state. They're looking for not a cognitive or intellectual understanding, but, a, but an existential or interpersonal level through the soul. And that's what, that is what uh, they understand happened. And uh, as the uh, prophets the very spiritual people of the past who we look at as very spiritual because they wrote portions of the Bible, and that's what we want to experience as well. So, problems. Since the content of Scripture originated from the impulse and wisdom of human beings, we must subject it to scientific criticism. This is, this is to say that we can respect Paul's view of the world because we respect his spirituality while we reject what he wrote about whatever the subject is. And so, this goes from the whole gamut. You will find Adventists who simply, or Christians, who simply are uh, ambivalent or even, in my view, um, wrong about uh, same-sex marriage or homosexual practice or those types of things because of this reason. You will even find people who go much further. For example, and I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to sort of pollute your minds with these stories. I'm trying to just sort of show you that even within Adventism, there are people that are way off, and it's because of their view of Scripture. Um, there, there's, there, there, I'll, I'll just say it. Um, there's a publication called Adventist Today, and um, I think it would be better called Adventist Yesterday because they often don't hold very many Adventist views anymore. But their executive editor, I had a, some discussion with, because when I was vice president of ASI, he made some, he published some statements about ASI that I, I took issue with, and we had a discussion publicly on, on some forums. And um, what was very interesting was that, um, to make this as short as possible, he had published an article, an interview, where he had said he was born without the faith gene. Okay. What does that mean? He didn't believe. He didn't believe. I guess that's the way it meant. If his grandkids were to ask him if there was a God, he wouldn't know what he would say to them. 
He said very explicitly in this interview, he did not believe there was any such thing as sin. Um, by the way, he's a, he's a avowed evolutionist. And I have to give him credit for at least being consistent in his intellectual approach to the idea of religion. Because listen, let's be very clear. We believe that death came as a result of Adam's sin, right? Is that what the Bible says? That's what the Bible says. Evolution says Adam, or mankind, didn't even come around until there had been millions and millions of cycles of death and dying. So you understand that you already have a big problem between Christianity and evolution. Uh, because if we came about because of death, then death didn't come about because of us. You can't have them both. So he has rationalized that. He's by simply saying there's no such thing as sin. He said further in this interview he doesn't believe there's any such thing as grace. He believes the church to be an, a human institution. Now how can you have that when you call yourself an Adventist or editor of an Adventist publication, he, he does say that he believes he coined the term cultural Adventist. In other words, he, he likes his Vegilinks, but he doesn't believe what the Adventist church teaches. He doesn't believe what Christianity teaches. Why? Because he doesn't believe the Bible. How can you not believe the Bible? Well, this is his explanation. Paul was writing from his scientific worldview that he had at that time. We have a much more advanced scientific worldview. What is he saying? He's saying Paul was a godly man. He had a spiritual experience, but his content did not come from God. His experience was with God, but his content was not from God. That's essentially encounter a revelation. So, since the content of Scripture originated from impulse and wisdom of human beings, we must subject it to scientific criticism. It is assumed that Scripture contains errors, not in only in historical details, but in all that it teaches, essentially. You can be saying something that is diametrically opposed to what Scripture teaches and be just as inspired as the Scripture because you're having a spiritual experience just like Paul was having a spiritual experience. That's encounter-revelation. And I don't need to tell you that I believe that's a very, very dangerous view of inspiration and revelation. It's, it's not what the Bible says and it's not the way inspiration happened, all right? Early Adventists used verbal inspiration as an argument against deism. And so this was, um, this was something that, uh, that early Adventists believed. Many, many Christians, by the way, King James Bible-believing Christians in the 1800s believed in verbal inspiration. And just as a, as a matter of comment, I'll say that many Bible-believing Christians today still believe in verbal inspiration. And I'm not here to try to criticize them. I'm just saying that's the reality. And many of them are very good people, and they're probably more faithful to Scripture than some of us who have uh, perhaps a more nuanced view of inspiration. But after the time of Ellen White, several prominent thought leaders also promoted verbal inspiration. I'll give you an example. And, and, and Carlisle Haynes is someone that I've, I enjoy, and I've read a lot of his material. And he was a very prolific writer and uh, editor, and um, I don't... I, I, I'm not here to criticize him. I'm just saying this is, this is verbal inspiration that was published in 1935, a book about the Bible called God's Book. Revelation is wholly supernatural, altogether controlled by God. Whether dealing with revelation or with facts within his knowledge, the Bible writer required inspiration to, be, to produce a record preserved 
from all error and mistakes. You see that, all error and mistakes. There's, there can be no mistakes in verbal inspiration. And this is what even some Adventists uh, viewed um, at that time. Um, however, Ellen White and the church's position has been a little more, uh, a little more uh, nuanced. We're going to talk about what we call that in a minute. But the General Conference Proceedings, Review and Herald, November 27, 1883. We believe the light given by God to His servants is by the enlightenment of the mind, thus imparting the what? The thought, and not, except in rare cases, the very words in which the ideas should be expressed. This is a little different, isn't it? It's actually significantly different. Because this is saying the thoughts are inspired, and the words are then chosen by the gospel writer to show, uh, or the prophetic writer, to uh, communicate the thought in the best words possible. There's a number of reasons why this is a preferred, preferred method of revelation inspiration. I'll give you a couple examples. Critics of the Bible, working away from the idea of verbal inspiration, they began looking at the Bible in a very scientific, detailed way. And they said, you know, you Christians, you believe that Paul was inspired, right? Well, guess what? Paul didn't write all of his epistles. It's pretty obvious Paul didn't write all his epistles. You know how? Because the different epistles use different words, different terminology, different grammar entirely. They do not have the same writer. That's just an analytical look at the writing of the epistles uh, Paul wrote. They do not have the same writer. Now, for verbal inspiration, this is very disturbing, right? This is earth-shattering. We now can't trust the writings of Paul because not, Paul didn't write all of his letters that he's claimed to have written. Maybe they're written by somebody else. We don't know. And so some people throw the baby out with the bathwater and they say, well, I guess we can't trust the Apostle Paul. We can't trust his writings. Who knows? Maybe the Gospels were forged later and all these higher critics of Scripture begin undermining, chipping away at the foundation of Scripture. But all of those attacks are predicated upon our view of verbal inspiration. When we believe in thought inspiration, we say, wait a minute. We don't need, in fact, the Bible explains it itself. We don't have to worry about this at all because Paul says his scribe wrote this book, right? He's dictating. We believe Paul had an eye problem. That was the thorn in the flesh. We don't know that for sure, but from the, a number of clues, we think that may be what happened. And Paul, throughout his writing career, and by the way, Paul wasn't the first. Jeremiah had a scribe. Others had scribes that wrote for them. Paul, throughout his prophetic career, actually had a number of different writers, and believe it or not, they even brought their own vocabulary. Paul was giving them the ideas, the thoughts, and they used the grammar that they were comfortable writing with. That's just reality. That's what happened. You can't study those passages without realizing they were written, they, they reflect a different writer. If that was all dictated verbal inspiration, why does the Holy Spirit have different grammar one week versus the next, right? That doesn't make sense. But when we understand that the prophet was, was given the thoughts and those thoughts were placed into the words in the best grammar and vocabulary they could use, it makes sense, right? Ellen White says this, It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words, or his expressions, but on the man himself who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. Selected Messages, uh, Volume 1, page 21. And so we come now to this, this uh, third 
uh, understanding of Revelation inspiration, what we call thought inspiration, sometimes referred to as plenary inspiration. Um, thought inspiration is this. Revelation affects the inspired writer's ideas, teachings, and concepts in their own mind, and they write these down in their own words. So only the biblical writer's thoughts, not the words they wrote, are inerrant. Now, do we, do, we, do we find that even with thought inspiration, there can be some problems? Yes. Some try to create a dichotomy between the thoughts and the words. In other words, they say, well, the thoughts were inspired, but the words aren't inspired. Well, wait a minute. How do you know what they were thinking unless you read what they wrote, right? That's basically how we answer that argument. Um, some would use this to explain, for example, how the main thoughts of the creation story could be accurate without the literal time periods being revealed. Um, but the practical problem is that we have no access to the prophetic thought if it died with the prophets, leaving only their fallible human words. So we are forced, when we believe in thought inspiration, we, have to, we are forced to say the words, the words communicating those thoughts are the only way that we know what those inspired thoughts were. And so they must be accurate as well. Um, they are not dictated, they're not chosen, but they are trustworthy. Um, we, we, we need to remember that. So, again, the Adventist position is, it is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired in inspiration and acts, not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. Nevertheless, she continues on, the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is infused, the divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will, thus the utterance of the man are the word of God. So we believe the Holy Spirit guided the prophets in, writing, in the writing process, ensuring that the prophets' own words, even though they were just human words, expressed the message they received in a trustworthy and reliable form. Um, this is what we, how we describe it. Through a personal encounter with God, the prophet receives communication, though partial, of knowledge regarding God and His will. The prophet is then led or corrected as they convey this knowledge through their own words. Now, this is a big difference between a prophet and a preacher. I'm a preacher today, but you, are, you better... Well, they even did this for Paul, but he was a prophet. But you better be searching your scriptures to see whether what I'm saying is true, right? Because I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm not inspired. You, can't, you have no evidence that I've been given visions and dreams, and you can, you can trust what I say as being prophetically inspired, right? But a prophet, on the other hand, if they say something that is not correct, if they use words that are not accurate, because they're a prophet and God protects the right, the gift of prophecy, a prophet is going to be corrected as they convey that knowledge through words. In other words, God reserves the right to correct a prophet. We're going to look at a couple of examples of that. So there's a number of different ways that we can view um, inspiration as taking place. Um, we're not going to take time to look at these Bible passages because we're actually running low on time here. But um, there's a number of ways that Revelation takes place in the Bible. Um, the Theophanic... In Exodus 3, the prophetic in Revelation 1, verbal in Exodus 31, where God actually dictates specific words, historical, where Luke is writing stories that have been told him by others, and wisdom and so forth. The goal of inspiration is not to upgrade the human mode of thinking or of writing, but to ensure that writers do not replace God's truth with their own ideas or interpretations. So you understand what we're talking about. We've switched from talking about Revelation. God inspires the writer, right? He has, they have thoughts. They have an understanding of the, the will and the truth of God. That's Revelation. Now we're moving to how that was inspired, in, how that was written, conveyed to us. 
inspiration. The goal of inspiration is not to upgrade the human mode of thinking or of writing, but to ensure that writers do not replace God's truth with their own ideas or interpretations. And we're going to look at a number of examples of intervention. For example, we have here Balaam. Remember the story of Balaam, who uh, was an overly ambitious prophet? He was known to be a prophet of God, right? A man of God. He was known to be a prophet. And so because he's known to be a prophet, I don't know what that means. Honestly, I don't know if he had visions or dreams previously. I don't know. But I do know this. God was going to make sure that what Balaam said was truth. Do you remember what happened when he, he headed off with the, uh, the second set of uh, ambassadors from Balak? And uh, remember the three times the donkey saved his life? And then the donkey starts talking to him, right? Any of you had a donkey talk to you? Any animal besides a parrot? <laughs> um, you think if an animal started talking to you, you'd say, wait, something supernatural is happening here? You think if an angel now stands before you and said, if your donkey hadn't done these things these three times, I would have killed you? You would say, you know what, I should probably change my mind about going with these guys. Balaam said, now if it displeases you, I'll go back home. If. I mean, this is pretty obvious, wasn't it? This was not pleasing to God, to the angel. But anyway, God allows him. You know, God sometimes allows us to do what we really have our heart set on, even though he tries to stop us from hurting ourselves. He does. You can go with them, but you're only going to be able to say the words that I speak to you. And so Balaam, who is a prophet of God, he's not just an ordinary preacher, obviously. He opens his mouth, and instead of cursing Israel, what, what comes out? Blessings, beautiful blessings, platitudes, all these wonderful, you're, you're, even, even, even messianic predictions of, the, of Jesus coming as the Messiah, the star that would rise out of, uh, and scepter that would rise out of Judah and Jacob. This is, this is an amazing story of how God intervenes in a prophet's writing, Okay. Um, in that case, it was speaking, but he's, um, he's interve intervening because he had the responsibility as a prophet. There's another thing that happens, and that is that as inspiration is taking place, in other words, the, 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 the prophet has received an understanding of the idea, but how to communicate that? This is what Ellen White says, Spiritual Gifts, Volume 2, pages 292-293. After I come out of vision, I do not at once remember all that I have seen. The matter is not so clear before me until I write. Then the scene rises before me as it was represented in vision, and I can write with freedom. Sometimes the things which I have seen are hid from me until after I come out of vision, and I cannot call them to mind until I am brought before a company where that vision applies. Then the things which I have seen come to my mind with force. You understand, she's already had it revealed to her, but when it's time to communicate it, that inspiration phase, the Holy Spirit is still using the prophet to, um, to in a miraculous way, bring that to their re re mind and memory. Um, I am just as dependent upon the Spirit of the Lord in relating or writing a vision as in having the vision. It is impossible for me to call up things which have been shown me unless the Lord brings them before me at the time that He is pleased to have me relate or write them. So here's, here's another uh, understanding of how the prophet is guided or blessed. Um, the, miraculously even the Holy Spirit works in the phase of inspiration as well, writing that, communicating that to us so that we can benefit from it. A third example of intervention is in find, helping find a fit word. Manuscript releases, volume 2, pages 156 and 157. While I'm writing out important matter, he is beside me helping me. He lays out my work before me, and when I'm puzzled for a fit word with which to express my thought, he brings it clearly and distinctly to my mind. So there are times when, when the prophet, Ellen White in this case, 
is struggling to know what word to use. Not, not every word, but a particular word she wants to use to describe what she understands. And the Lord actually has helped her to have that word. That's an example of intervention. It, it's exception, isn't it? That's, that's not the rule, but this is when she's struggling, she's trying to find the right word. And the, the last example of intervention is when we have a mistake made. Um, and the Bible, we'll look at this in a minute, we'll look at how the Bible has an example of this as well. But um, in Ellen White's ministry, this took place as well. Um, there was a meeting at Elmshaven on October uh, of, of 1902, and basically church leaders had come there to talk to Ellen White because they were running into financial difficulties at one of the church's main institutions, a publishing house called Southern Publishing Association. And um, for those of you who, are, who know that history, um, this was one of the, the three at the time publishing houses in the Adventist denomination. We had the Pacific Press out west. We had the Review and Herald in the east coast. We had Southern Pub down in Tennessee. And so this was, a, this was a major church institution. And there were those who said, look, we don't need all three, and, um, and we have, um, you know, this, the, the financial problems are too great, so we just need to close that. So they came to Ellen White in this meeting, and they, uh, they laid out the situation before her, and they said, this is the situation, we think we have to close the publishing house down south, and um, it's not worth pouring more and more money into it, it's a losing, uh, losing cause. And this is what Ellen White said. I say, go ahead. God's cause must not be left to reproach, no matter who is made sore by arranging matters on a right basis. That was her message. Now, within 24 hours, she had a vision of an operating room where amputations were taking place, and she was told very clearly that um, the church needed this publishing house and that this was a wrong counsel that she had given to say that it should be closed. Um, so she turned around and uh, wrote church leaders and said, never mind, don't close the Southern Publishing Association. For some people, this was earth-shattering because they began to question the very inspiration of Ellen White. How could she be inspired if she said, close it, and then 24 hours later she said, don't close it? The message to continue the work of the Southern Publishing Association was truly disconcerting. It brought great disappointment to many. Its contradiction, its contradiction to the council given to us in our interview threw some into perplexity. A.G. Daniels, General Conference President, said when writing about the abiding gift of prophecy. How is it that this could happen? Well, it's very simple. It's very simple, and it's the same way it took place in the Old Testament. Remember, David said to Nathan the prophet, I want to build a temple. I want to build a real temple, not just this, the, it's not fitting that I should dwell in a palace and the, the temple of God is this tent, you know, from, from, from the wilderness days. And Nathan said to David, do all that is in thine heart, for God is with thee. And it came to pass the same night, the words of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell David thy servant, thus saith the Lord, you shall not build me a house. So God intervenes when a prophet makes the wrong message or gives the wrong message. This is to say, this is the significant difference between a preacher and a prophet, isn't it? Significant difference. A prophet, because God knows that you and I depend upon their messages to be accurate, 
if they choose, remember, they are the inspired person, not the words, right? And so God has inspired them with understanding, wisdom, counsel, all of these things that are expected to be inspired. But if they, re, if they say something that's relying upon their human understanding that is wrong, God is going to correct that prophet. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. You'll read if you, I don't recommend it, but if you go to some of the websites that criticize Ellen White, some of them make up stories and things that absolutely had no basis in fact, never happened, she never said that, never wrote that. But there are some that, that take, even among Adventists, that take um, real life situations and they say, see, she could not have been inspired. One of those situations took place, and I may get, I'm, I haven't reviewed this recently, I may get some of the details a little bit off, but you'll get the idea. I believe it was a sanitarium down in Southern California they were, re, they were buying. And the building she talked about it having 40 beds, as I recall. Well, she wrote this counsel to somebody that they should buy it and so forth and so on. And she's describing it as she describes this 40 beds. And um, the person who received this letter became very, very unsure of what to do next because it didn't have 40 beds. It had like 39 right? Now, again, if you were believing verbal inspiration, you'd have a problem, wouldn't you? Because God should know there's 39 or 40, or 38 and 40, whatever it was, right? He should know. Would you agree? So if you believe verbal inspiration, you've got a problem. However, understanding inspiration as we do, where God is working upon, He inspires the individual, they then write things. God has a choice whether He intervenes or not. There's something that tells me that God might see whether it was 39 or 40 beds or 38 or 40 beds as being not very significant and not worth giving a vision over and intervening about. Does that make sense? Because it didn't change the counsel at all. This was an this was a ex, external issue that had nothing to do with the decision at hand, with the question of what to do, with the counsels being written. Much like, I would argue, the one demoniac versus two demoniacs. Does God know how many of there were there? Of course. But does it change the meaning of the story, whether there's one or two? No, it doesn't. Not, not in my reading of it. Um, perhaps perhaps um, that's why God didn't choose to change that. So here we have in the Bible a, a, uh, an example of a prophet who spoke something. The prophet was inspired, and so God has a duty to correct him or her if there's something said that's inaccurate. Particularly, I would say something's inaccurate that's going to be an important or misleading or uh, somehow damaging bit of information. God told Nathan, go and tell David, my servant, you're not supposed to build the temple. So when a recognized prophet, through self-interest, attempts to change God's truth into lie, as in Balaam, God will intervene. Uh, when a prophet expresses thoughts or words not in harmony with God's message or will, God will intervene, and He will set the matter straight. Now, one thing we have to be very clear about as we, as we come to an end of understanding this, this matter of revelation inspiration, um, I do not believe there are any, um, there's not a sliding scale of degrees of inspiration. In other words, this prophet's more inspired than that prophet. Um, that prophet wrote a 
book of the Bible, so they're more inspired. This prophet didn't write a book of the Bible, so they're not as inspired. Um, the reality is that some inspired writings are not included in the biblical canon. We know that. Have you ever read, you know, um, the book of Enoch or other books that are described as being written by prophets? We can look in 1 Chronicles 29, 29 for one example. We don't have them in the Bible. That doesn't mean that they were less inspired. By the way, some prophets never wrote their messages at all. We don't have a book of John the Baptist, and yet Jesus called him the greatest prophet. Um, some prophets never wrote their messages. They were just as inspired. The same Holy Spirit inspired and led all with the same prophetic gift in the same manner, including, this is my belief, God's end-time prophet, Ellen White, which was predicted in prophecy, that she would be among those who would have the gift of inspiration. And um, when you read and you compare Revelation 12, 17, Revelation 19, 10, and Revelation 22, 9, you will see that the gift of prophecies described in the last day church is the same gift of prophecy that was given to the apostles and prophets of the Old Testament. This is my conviction, and uh, this, is, this is what it says. Remember in Revelation 19.10, John is about to fall down at the foot of Gabriel, the angel, and Gabriel says, don't do it, right? Because I am of uh, your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. That's what he says. The exact same thing happens in Revelation 22. John's about to fall down before Gabriel. Gabriel says, don't do it because I am of your brethren, the prophets. So those who have the testimony of Jesus evidently are the prophets. That's Daniel. That's Jeremiah. That's David. That's the Old Testament writers. And by the way, those who didn't have biblical books. That's the gift they had. And that's the same gift Revelation 12, 17, that is described as being present in the last day remnant people. So, I don't believe that you can qualify inspiration as being one is more inspired than another. And by the way, before I, before I move on, I want to say this is the latest, maybe not the latest, one of the latest heresies within Adventism is that Ellen White herself throughout her ministry had degrees of inspiration. And they will, you will hear some people say, yes, but when did she write that? And the premise they're working off of is that later in life, she was more inspired than early in life. Because she became more mature in understanding of righteousness by faith, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The reality is, if you were to make an argument for degrees of information, inspiration, you have to make it the other direction. Because the vast majority of her direct visions were early in her ministry, not later in her ministry. So if we believe in degrees of inspiration, I would have to trust her more at the beginning than at the end. Uh, but we don't believe that. We believe that she was inspired just as the other apostles and prophets were inspired of God. All, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. I hope that helps you understand a little bit more how revelation works, how inspiration works. And it's based on that understanding that we're going to be unpacking principles of interpretation in coming seminars. In the next hour, after lunch, we will be talking about the history of prophetic interpretation. Different, or not prophetic, but biblical interpretation. Um, and then the last today, we'll be talking about principles for interpreting today, um, how we interpret the Word of God. Father in heaven, we just thank you for giving us the Word of God. We thank you that it is the power um, to change, it has power to change our lives, that it is described as a, as a living 
abiding, incorruptible seed. Um, it, it has the ability to wash us and cleanse us from all impurities and from our idols. And I just pray, Father, that as we continue to study during this GYC, that you'll help that word change us as well. Give us confidence in your word as the inspired word. And help us not to neglect so great a gift that's given to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.